with us last week, we picked up where we're at in our preaching series. Um, I'm preaching through the book of Exodus, so if you happen to have a Bible with you, you're welcome to open that to the Old Testament. It's the second book in the Bible, so Genesis, then Exodus. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we'll have the words projected. Um, but we're, we're just going to pick up. That's, that's primarily how uh, we handle preaching here, our our. Our diet of preaching is the Bible. Um, we usually preach consecutively through books of the Bible. We'll pause on occasion and do different things. And, um, but primarily, uh, the way our conviction is that the way that God feeds his people is through the preaching of his word. And so we're picking up where we left off last week. So we are in Exodus chapter 7. And I could think of you know, no better way on the heels of Easter uh, to talk about, uh, we're just going to dive right into judgment and plagues. Um, so, so this Sunday and next Sunday, it's going to be a little heavy. Um, and, and just to balance it out, um, our children this morning are learning uh, from Joshua chapter 1 and 2 about uh, Rahab uh, the harlot. So, you know, I'm just saying lunch conversation today might be a little different. So just, just throwing that out there. Just, it just, that's just how the dice fell today. Uh, before we, before we uh, read through the text, it's, it's actually a lengthy passage this morning, um, but before we read through it, um, t- two, two sayings that, I, that I'm assuming have, have rolled off of most lips that are in this room this morning. Only God can judge me, and don't judge a book by its cover. Right? We've both at least heard those, and if we survey our lives, we've probably both said one, if not both of those at some point. Both of those statements are actually terribly frightening statements. Um, only God can judge me. On the surface, um, you know, the, the, the motive, I think, behind a statement like that is to protect human judgment. Right? Don't, don't, don't make judgments about my life. God will do that. It's actually very terrifying. The second one, don't judge a book by its cover, is, is saying, you know, again, don't make judgments about what you see, judge the inside, the substance, the content of the book and or my life. Also a very terrifying idea. Today, um, as we look through these plagues in the book of Exodus, I think we will all see how judgment runs deep inside of us. And so that's why the idea of judgment is very, um, it's very distant from us. We, we want to keep it away from us. But today's text demands that we talk about it, and I think you'll be glad we did. Let's read the passage. I'm actually going to read uh, beginning in chapter 7, verse 14, and I'm going to go through uh, chapter 8, verse, um, I believe, 19. Yes, so it's a bit of a lengthy reading, but uh, please follow along as we listen to the word of the Lord. Exodus chapter 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. So go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water and stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness, but so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the, Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people, and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and your servants and for your people, that the frogs may be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. And so Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. So Aaron stretched out his hand and his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask him to bless the preaching of it. God, our Father, it is my deepest desire that every meditation of all of our hearts gathered here in the mouth of this one man, the, the words of this one man's mouth would be pleasing in your sight. 
O Lord. You are our rock. You are our redeemer. Would you do this for your sake? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I have discovered some of these new Netflix series shows. Um, I don't know if you... If you're, if you're Netflix fans, you'll, you'll know Netflix is producing a lot of their own shows now. And one of the ones that I've recently stumbled across is called The Confession Tapes. Um, confession Tapes, they're kind of single episodes that, that usually, I've only watched a handful, but usually geared towards, it's kind of like documentary style or investigative journalism type of stuff uh, around usually a murder case. Um, and what they show is um, how in these cases, at least from the, their perspective, that uh, there is this way um, that um, investigators and detectives are able to manipulate a false confession out of someone. So as you're watching the show, um, you know, whatever the circumstances are, you know, there, there are likely candidates who, who, who the murderer could have been, and, and they usually target these candidates and try to pro- provoke them to make a confession. And, 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 of course, you know, the, the, the stacking up of the show leads up to this, this kind of, they build up this case where investigators and detectives ap- appear to be manipulating and, and trying to almost use fear tactics to get people to confess things that they did not do. And, it, and it's, it's, it's shocking. Um, you know, you watch the show and they've got a lot of video footage of these interviews that they're doing. And here I am, you know, on my, on my couch watching this show, and all I'm thinking is ask for a lawyer, right? Like, like, like that is the whole thing. I mean, that's the whole premise. I mean, that's my takeaway is like, if you're under any scrutiny for anything, ask for legal representation, and, 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 you know, it's the, obviously I'm watching a show that's built all this up and these people are, are in the midst of it, but, but you see the way a human being can be manipulated into saying something they don't believe simply out of fear and, and a number of other tactics. Um, the next two weeks, uh, we're going to talk about judgment, um, God's judgment um, of the world and God's judgment of individuals. And, and, and largely, uh, my approach to this is I want all of us to, to walk away from this text asking the question of why do we need Jesus so much? Or maybe you'll walk away from this text saying, I don't think I need Jesus all that much. Um, and so, kind of the banner over the next two weeks is why the significance of the man Jesus? What does that have to do with judgment and our understanding of God's judgment? Um, a few things I want us to, we're going to kind of broadly look at from these three first plagues. Uh, just so you know, there's, there's a total of ten plagues. Um, they, they, the way most scholars look at the plagues is they're kind of three cycles of three. So you'll notice the first one was lengthier in the, in the narrative. The second one got a little shorter. The third one was shorter. Well, the next three will be the same kind of layout. So there's kind of three cycles of three culminating and climaxing in the, the tenth and final plague, the plague of darkness. And so we're going to look at the first three this morning. And these are the three things I want us to understand about God's judgment, divine judgment. And they are these. I want us to see that divine judgment is comprehensive. 
I want us to see that divine judgment is confrontational. And then I want us to see that divine judgment aims at our core. So it's comprehensive, compre- uh, con- confrontational, and it aims at our core. Let's, let's consider the comprehensive nature of God's divine judgment. Um, if, you were, if you were following along in the, in the narrative as I read, um, you'll, you'll, you'll have noticed that, that all three plagues um, specifically highlighted um, kind of the exhaustive nature of them. So for the Nile River, God made it very clear, strike all of the river, all of the canals, all of the ponds. In, in other words, every source of water in the land, strike it. Uh, with the frogs, if you notice kind of the all-inclusive nature and even the extent of which the, the text read, you know, it, it would go up into their homes, into their beds, into their ovens, into their kneading bowls. This was God's way of showing the comprehensive extent and the reach of his judgment. And with the gnats, though the the narrative was a little more brief in nature, it said that it struck every man and beast on the land. So it's very extensive in nature. It's very exhaustive. It's very comprehensive. Uh, It reminds me of a a quote. Many of you have heard this. Some of you haven't from a a Dutch theologian named Abraham Kuyper. He would say this, He would say, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. God begins to show his supremacy through judgment in its comprehensive scope over the entirety of our lives. You'll notice in the later plagues that God's people begin becoming exempt from some of the plagues, but that is not the case with all three of these. This is Egyptians and Israelites alike fall under the judgment plagues. Now, here we are some thousands of years later um, where the Nile River has little to no effect on our lives, uh, where frogs are contained in cages, uh, gnats are, you know, a, a mere... In fact, they think they might even be mosquitoes, which would be deathly to me. But like, like none of this really resonates with you. Um, and, and we're going to kind of tease out how, how they do resonate in our lives. But, but, but really, the thing that I think up front we need to observe from the text is that divine judgment accesses every corner of our lives. Like, like there is no arena of your life that will not be under the microscope of divine judgment. So our finances will be scrutinized by the Lord's judgment. He will, he will be in the track records of our checking, checking accounts. Um, you know, our, our marriage certainly will be scrutinized by judgment. The treatment of the spouse. You know, our, our, our parent, Parenting will be, will be under divine judgment. You know, our work ethic or lack thereof, whether it's overworking or underworking, will be under judgment. Um, the way we um, relate to and engage with our neighbors, 
like our literal neighbors, like the ones that we probably don't even know their names, will be under judgment. Um, the way we handle our leisure lives, judgment. And if, if that isn't beginning to feel uncomfortable for you, um, let me remind you what the standard for divine judgment is. It's perfection. Like the Lord of the Scriptures requires perfection of humanity. And so if that is troubling you, you're feeling what I'm sensing. It's comprehensive, it's exhaustive, and the standards, it is extremely high. So that's what divine judgment is being comprehensive looks like. Well, let's look at what divine judgment is being confrontational looks like, if you're not uncomfortable enough yet. Um, I, I alluded to this earlier in a couple comments, but every single one of these plagues um, is a direct confrontational attack on a cultural god of the time. And so I won't necessarily do this with every plague, but let me just comment on the first three. Uh, so the, the way, the, way the, the plagues line up is God attacks and confronts the two largest cultural idols of the time when it was occurring in the first and the last one. So the Nile River and the sun, so darkness being the plague. So these are the two largest cultural gods of that time. And in between it, God attacks every single one that they worshipped in between it. And so you, you look at um, the Nile River, and, and, and most scholars agree that um, there was a god named Happy, H-A-P-I, who was the Nile god. And, and essentially, in this animistic type of worship, the river, the water itself was the sustainer and keeper of life. I mean, it's where their, their life source came from was the Nile. For the frog, it was Hecate, the frog goddess. And so she was the, the, the god of fertility. She was the, the source and the giver of life, the frog. So God is confronting that god. And then for the third one, the gnats, most commentators agree that, that this was a direct attack on the magicians or the magic arts themselves. And so you, you notice the, the first two, the magicians of Egypt, were able to replicate what God had done, not so for the third. And so God is confronting the, the strongest power of supernatural life that they knew in that time. Um. Now, again, for you and I, the Nile River frogs and gnats have little to do with our lives. I mean, let, let, let's be honest. Uh, but the substance that lies under that, it has everything to do with our lives. I love the way Tim Keller, who is an author, um, was, was a pastor at a church in New York City. If you're not familiar with him, anything he writes, you ought to read. Um, but in one of his books, one of his first books called Counterfeit Gods, he defined idolatry uh, like this. And I think you and I will find this helpful. He said, idolatry is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, to give you what only God can give you. I think that's a helpful, <clears throat> excuse me, 
a helpful framework for us to think about these things that God is confronting. So he's confronting in the Nile River, where is our security found? Where do we find that deep sense of rooted security? And for American Christians and non-Christians, it's really easy. It's money. Right? I mean, money is the thing that provides us the security that we also desperately want. And so, how do we live our lives? Well, we live our lives to just accrue more and more and more of it. Um, what about the frogs? Well, the question that's asking and getting at is, where is our value or where is our worth? Where do we, where do we find life-giving substance for us? And for us, I think many of us today, I mean, you could go a variety of directions, but I think for us, in our context, the ultimate expression of value and worth can be summarized in a good vacation. I mean, you think about it. I mean, we will, I mean, it is, it is the thing that dictates the year, right? Like if you're a, a big vacation family, like that is the thing that's driving you to get out of bed every morning is I'm going to get that time in that place. We will make sacrifices to no end to make that happen. And then we'll tell everybody about it on social media because it gives us worth. And, and, and so the, the, level, the level of value of things like that, and you can go a number of directions. It might be toys for you. It might be a larger home, whatever. I, I just picked on vacations because I, I need one. Um, but, but, but like that is the source giver. Like the vacation on your calendar is, is, is saying, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, right? Like that's how that can operate for us. And I would say that's a dysfunctional idolatry. I love vacation, but I think God begins to confront those things in our lives. What about the magic arts? Um, the question that's underneath this idol is the question of where is my satisfaction and joy found? Where are my deepest and highest levels of delight discovered? Um, it, is, it is our, you know, magic arts for Egyptian culture is for the human being to attempt to tap into euphoria or eternity. It is our best efforts as humans to taste the thing of glory. And so it's no wonder that the pornography industry is a billion-dollar industry because it's captivated hearts who want to touch that. And it's no wonder that excessive eating and excessive drinking is the default weakness of our lives because we want to touch the things that are eternal. See, what, what these confrontations on these cultural gods begin to do is they begin to ask, divine judgment begins to ask us to do this. It says divine judgment confronts the things that we love most and it tells us to replace them. 
which is an extremely hard thing to not only think about, but to do. And so, so what, what, what do you love most? What is that thing that God is confronting? Is it the, the innocent pleasure of the screen that seems to be hurting nobody else in your life? Um, is, it, is it the idolatry of our children who dictate everything we do? Like, like the way we elevate our kids, that, that it centralizes every decision made, financial, schedule, everything we do to the, to the idolatry level? Or, or what is it the thing, like here's how to find your idols in your hearts. When you ask this question, what will I do anything to have? It, it sounds like this. If I could just have this, everything would be okay. If I could just get this promotion, we would be all right. right? If I could just find a spouse, then everything would be all right. Um, do you remember, for those of you that, are, that frequent the New Testament, um, do you remember Jesus addressing the rich young ruler? Um, he, he works through this whole thing with the law. The rich young ruler comes up and says, you know, what, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus works through the law and he says, hey, I've done all these things, God. And, uh, and at the end of it, you know, Jesus knows this man's heart, right? The scriptures clearly make it very evident that, that Jesus sees into the interior of this man's life and he knew the thing he needed most, his idolatry, his fill in the blank was money. And so what did he ask him to do? He said, give it all away and then follow me. And do you remember how that man walked away? Discouraged. Because he would not replace his thing with God. He wouldn't do it. So what judgment begins to do to us internally is to reveal the things that enthrone our hearts. It's to begin to show us the things that we need most. And God says, replace them with me. But the third, and maybe even the most painful, if this hasn't been painful yet, thing about divine judgment is that divine judgment aims at our core. Um, about three years ago, when, when we were preparing to move to Albuquerque, um, so this time of year in, in uh, 2015, uh, we, we came out here for, for a house hunting trip. Um, and so we were coming out to find the house that we were going to live in. And, um, and, and my wife's a beast when it comes to these things. Like she had us, you know, we had our realtor lined up. We, we were only here a couple days. And I mean, she had a folder of houses, you know, just lined up. Like, here's what we're going to do. I mean, this, this realtor, you know, she had no idea what she was getting involved with here. I mean, literally, we're, we're, you know, we're doing the west side. We wanted to live on the west side. And the lady's kind of, she's kind of casual. She's trying to be friendly towards us. You guys want to stop for lunch? You know, and Heather tosses her a granola bar. And she goes, no, let's go. You know, like, like that, that, was, that, was, that was house hunting. Um, but w- when, we, when we ended up looking at the house uh, that, that we're in now, um, you know, at the time, 
largely what you're looking at in a home is, is exterior and cosmetic, for the most part, right? The, the house that we were looking at was not being lived in, so there was no furniture, there were no people there. It was just a big, empty, beautiful home. And, and, and you know, it was the home Heather wanted, so it was the home Heather got. And, you know, we've been in it three, uh, three years now, and it's not until you get into the interior living of a home that you begin to see things that are lacking, right? I mean, um, we have no closet space. Like, like, and when you're shopping for a home, you're not thinking, where are we going to keep the towels? Like, that, that's just not on the forefront of your mind, but now it is. Like, we have no closet space. Um, our shower's tiny. Uh, Heather shares a shower with the boys. Yeah, like... If she comes to mind, pray for her because like she's using their bathroom. So um, that's, that's like a, a nasty, yeah, you, you guys didn't get that joke at all. But that is not a space you want to be in. But like living in the interior began to show us kind of the, some of the flaws of our home that we didn't see uh, before. See, judging simply by the exterior and cosmetics of things is the way we think by and large God will judge us. Like, I, I think we look at the way we've conducted our lives, you know, the, the way we've conducted our relationships, you know, all of these kind of exterior things we try to manage and keep, keep good, God is, is really not even that concerned with. He goes, he goes inside, which should be frightening. Um, if, if you notice the way that the, the, the narrative read about Pharaoh, it, it frequently said, Pharaoh hardened his heart. I mean, in every single plague, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Now, you have to understand, for the, for the Bible, when, when the Bible talks about the heart, I think when you and I hear the heart, we primarily think of emotions. So we think of like, oh, you know, like your heart is good, like your emotions or your motivation is good. For the Bible, the heart was the seat, the center of the person, which included certainly the emotions, but also the actions and the thought life and, and all of it. It was the exhaustive component of the internal person, and God begins to show judgment over that by saying Pharaoh hardened his heart. See, for Egyptian culture, what they believed about the afterlife was that when you died, you would go to the underworld, and there would be a set of scales on the underworld, and on one side of the scale would be the feather of truth and righteousness, a feather, a light feather. And on the other side of the scale, you would take the human heart, the organ of the heart, and you would weigh it against the scale of the, truth, of the feather of truth and righteousness. And so the heart that is weighed down. In fact, the word used there is actually not even hardened. It's the word heavy. The heavy heart was the heart that was weighed down with iniquity and injustice. And if the heart didn't, uh, if it outweighed the feather of truth and righteousness, it would be tossed to the goddess, the devouress, and they would be consumed and they would not enter afterlife. Um. Do you remember how Jesus handled the interior aspects of our lives? Uh, if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, so greatest sermon ever preached by Jesus, Matthew chapter 5, what he begins to do is he begins to confront the way you and I look at the external components of our lives. And he begins to take the law as an example. And he uses two specific things that I'm thinking of. He uses anger and he uses adultery. Two things in which we think is primarily external, right? Things we say, 
the way we're angry towards people, or adultery, the physical act of adultery. And what Jesus does is he takes those outside things and he drops it to the level of the heart. He says the brother who has sinned in his heart in anger has murdered his brother. And the one who has looked at a woman lustfully in his heart, like the thought of it, has already committed adultery in the eyes of the Lord. And so Jesus begins to radically, radically turn upside down the way we primarily think judgment works, namely from the outside in. He says it's from the inside out. In one of the other gospel accounts, Jesus would say that there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but it's the things that come out of a person that defile him. See, the work of God through judgment is not from the outside in, it's always from the inside out. God knows how bad we really are inside. There is nothing that can be hidden from his judgment. Like he knows every corner and crevice of your thought life, even if it's never said. He certainly knows all of your activities, both public and private. He knows all of it. That's fearful if he were to run from you. But the scripture says that God knew all of that about you and he still loved you. Now that is when judgment begins to change for us. And so, if you've heard anything I've said today, who, who could withstand judgment like this? Who could withstand the comprehensive nature of this judgment? Who, who could withstand the confrontational aspect of it, how it confronts the things we love most? I mean, who could withstand the fact that it goes to the very core of our person and destroys it with judgment? Who could withstand that? And the answer is only one. There is one person in the history of the entire world who could withstand the microscopic scrutiny of divine judgment, and his name is Jesus. See, what we observe in, in, in the Gospels, in the, in the Bible, is not just a man who was just a, just a, good, a good old boy, right? He wasn't just like this kind of this church-going, you know, rule-following type of man. He was a man who internally, completely and entirely and perfectly loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that came out in his actions, right? So what we see externally. And he, and he wasn't just a man um, who lived that life, but then he was a man who knew the interior judgment that you were facing. He knew what was coming as people's way. And he willingly bridged the gap. He willingly came in and was savagely critiqued for your poor performance. I don't, I don't know what you think about when you think about the cross, but I want you to begin thinking of it like this. The cross of Jesus Christ 
is the place where your life was most savagely critiqued. All of your religious efforts, all of your exterior desires to please God will never be enough. And so Jesus willingly said, I'll take the fall for you. And if, and if that weren't enough, if, if you're here today and you just need that, just that glittering hope that that's enough, it's what the resurrection represents. That God has fully accepted his work on behalf of his people. And he requires nothing more from us. Now, here's a question that I kind of want to land and close with. And I want you to ask yourself this morning. Is how can I escape this judgment? How can I escape the divine judgment that's coming my way? There was a man in the New Testament... Uh, He was a a jailer. If you're familiar with the New Testament, in Acts chapter 16, there was a man whom God's spirit was working. The the, the jail had crumbled around them and prisoners he thought had escaped. And there was a man with a sword to his throat. The text says that he had a sword ready to take his very own life because he knew there was judgment coming his way. Not, Not even divine judgment, but he knew there was earthly judgment coming, but but he had the inclination that his life was, was worthless. He comes to that point and he asks this question. He asked it, it of the apostles who were at the jail with him. He said, what must I do to be saved? And when he's talking about being saved, he's talking about being saved from this wrathful judgment. What must I do? Now, if you and I were answering that question, we might come up with all kinds of different answers for that. But here's the answer the New Testament gives. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe. Transfer all of your trust from everything you've been trying to do to this one, to the sin-bearing, wrath-absorbing, judgment-deferring one who stood in your place as a substitute. Trust that that is enough and you will be saved. Believers, there is a theological term that I want you to leave with. The term is justification. It's a fancy word. Theologians use it a lot. I'm sure some of you use it on occasion. But this idea of justification is the very thing that happens when you do that. When you believe, when you transfer trust, you are justified in God's eyes, reckoned as righteous. Your record of foolishness, failures, weaknesses was transferred to him and his record of righteousness and obedience was transferred to you And upon believing, you get legal status in God's eyes. He no longer sees you as you once were. He now sees you as Christ always will be. That's the best news in the entire history of the world, friends. There is no greater news that can change your life now. And there's two responses today, and I'll leave you with this. You can scorn mercy 
like Pharaoh did in verse 15, when God relented of the plague, Pharaoh remained hardened. Or you can savor that mercy today and you can worship and serve the Lord with everything that you have. It's the very thing that God is working in his people in Exodus and I pray that it's the very thing that he would work in his people at Mosaic. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, it is, it is extremely uncomfortable for us to analyze our lives, both externally and internally. God, I know, I know many of us here come from a background where, where you have been depicted as this shoe-dropping, you know, gavel-pounding judge. And, um, and we just can't shake that, Lord. And so we live our lives in a way in which we think we have to earn your, your acceptance. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see, maybe even for the first time, or for the, for the many years in which we've been believing for the millionth time, how important Jesus is to us. That he would stand in our place and bear our sin and absorb your wrath and defer judgment so that we could serve and worship you. Lord, help us to see him clearly today and we pray these things in his name. Amen.